key to life. Hello, this is Sekou Burmese, your host of The Lit Review, a podcast brought to you by the Academy of Management Journal. In this podcast, we dive into the insights of recent research published in the Academy of Management Journal. In every episode, we interview authors and corporate leaders to discuss the inspiration for research and how insights from research apply to current pressing issues in organizations and markets. My guest today is Madupe Akinola, the Barbara and David Zelaznik Professor of Business at Columbia Business School. In our conversation today, we talk about the decisions that firms make about diversity initiatives. For as long as I can remember, there have been widespread efforts to address historical demographic imbalances within prominent and powerful organizations. While some progress has been made, the persistence of underrepresentation remains salient. What explains this state of affairs? Well, one train of thought has emerged, which suggests that diversity may be in the eye of the beholder, meaning there is no good consensus about what constitutes a lack of diversity that is stark enough to require action. In a recently published paper in AMJ, Madupe and her co-authors examine this question with a simple but profound premise. Perhaps lack of diversity, quote unquote, is a social norm that is not based solely on objective analysis, but instead is a baseline determined by the action of our peers. The authors use a set of experiments to test how social norms and public scrutiny might impact decisions within firms to add members who represent historically underrepresented groups. The results of this paper shed some light about why diversity efforts often stall within organizations. Madupe also shares some insights about additional research she's done, looking at how men and women approach the decision to delegate as managers, as well as her newfound interest in how just about everyone can benefit from giving honest feedback. I hope that you enjoy this episode of The Lit Review and my discussion with Madupe Akinola. My guest today on The Lit Review podcast is Madupe Akinola, the Barbara and David Zelaznik Professor of Business, as well as the Faculty Director of the Sanford C. Bernstein and Company Center for Leadership and Ethics at Columbia Business School. Her research examines how organizational environments with the pressures of deadlines and multitasking can lead to stress and how this stress can spill over to affect performance. She also studies workforce diversity, which we'll be talking about today, including the biases that affect the recruitment and retention of women and people of color in organizations. Hi, Madupe, and welcome to the Lit Review Podcast. How are you doing today? Hello. Hello, Sekou. I'm doing well. It's good to be here, and thanks for having me on. It is my pleasure. You are a busy woman. And so tracking you down has been no easy task, but I'm glad I was able to. And thank you for for gracing us here at the Lit Review. I'm going to dive right in. Um, I want to start by discussing this paper that you and your co-authors published in the Academy of Management Journal in 2019. And this is a paper that dives into a really thorny question around diversity in organizations and specifically about how decision makers in organizations come to understand diversity and representation. So this is a topic that's top of mind, it's in the news, but I think your paper has particularly become well-known for demonstrating this idea about diversity thresholds and how they develop across firms, not just within firms. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of the paper, I'm I'm curious, how did you and your co-authors get interested in this topic? How did you end up uh, deciding to investigate diversity thresholds? 
Yeah, well, my co-authors and I study diversity and we had uh, conducted some research on faculty and some of the ways in which they can be biased. And so we wanted to take this to the corporate world and really understand what some of the biases that exist in organizations actually look like. And, you know, funny enough, right now we talk a lot about increasing women and um, people of color on boards. But when we started this work in like 2017 or 2018 with a wonderful grad student, <laughs> Edward Chang, mm-hmm. um, we wanted to really understand what needed to be done to make sure that organizations had diversity on their radar. It's even more. It was also the time when countries had quotas around the number of women in boards in Europe and other things. We wanted to really just investigate it based on uh, our desire to better understand what we could do to make sure that organizations had this idea of diversity on boards as top of mind. Yeah. So and I want to talk specifically about the kind of board and thresholds. I remember reading those studies in like Scandinavian countries, I believe, right? And they had set these very high bars, like 40, 50 percent in essence. So um, what were some of the takeaways in your view? What were like the key findings from from the paper? What are the things that you 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 find yourself uh, discussing the most? Right. So we looked at uh, S&P 1500 companies and their board composition over several years. And we found that there is an overrepresentation of exactly two women on these boards. And mm-hmm. we're kind of like, okay, well, why two? Well, two was kind of like the social norm. Mm. And so when you kind of feel like, oh, I'm under the norm, you're going to be more likely to be like, well, let me meet that threshold mm-hmm. and then potentially stop increasing the percentage of women. And so that's basically what we found. And what was interesting about this idea was that we found that this idea, which we call tokenism, is more pronounced among visible companies. So when you care about impression management and when you're being scrutinized, that's when you're more likely to look at, okay, this might be be the norm. Let me just Mm -hmm. go above that norm so that I can kind of coast. And so those were our key findings. And we examined this uh, looking at past data. And then we also ran experiments to test whether uh, this uh, idea would emerge when you, you know, make people more aware of the norm or when you make people aware that they are going to be scrutinized. So those are the key findings. Yeah. So. I, I can't help, but you know, I'll, I'll be the cynic. It's fine. I'm a New Yorker, so I, I'm I'm a born cynic. Me too. You, me too. <laughs> yeah, you know that. exactly. You know how it is. You're like, okay, so do you, is your takeaway then that you, if I can extend it a little bit, is that this idea of the thresholds is really about kind of doing just enough, right, so that you right. don't get in trouble, so you don't end up on the front page of newspaper, and is that kind of the sense you get how uh, a lot of organizations are thinking about it as far as directors and and for top 1500 companies or or do you think it's it's something else maybe more nuanced or complex is it just people doing what they need to do to stay out of trouble or are there other factors you think that might be driving this well i i do think that ultimately a piece of this is we don't want to be in trouble we don't want to look like the people who don't care about diversity. And mm-hmm. again, this was before 2020, before the yeah. racial reckoning. So you can imagine, or I'd hope that there isn't an overrepresentation of three now, or there isn't an overrepresentation of four now, but that companies are really understanding the benefits of diversity. 
Mm-hmm. So when you're just focused on the social norm, that means that you are really not thinking about how important it is to have diverse yeah. perspectives. And by yeah. the way, this paper focused on gender. Mm-hmm. Well, what about other representation that we need? We know that our companies in general are not diverse when it comes to senior leadership. So how do we just broaden and not focus just on the itty bitty that we need to do to not be viewed as the bad guys? And tokenism, who coined that? Because that's like, I'll never forget that. I really do believe that uh, the grad student working on it at the time came up with that. And it's brilliant. It's just such a it's such a great, great term. And, you know, a piece of this is also that we noticed in the paper or in the analysis that this idea of tokenism emerged when the norm shifted from just one person on board too. So it's like after 2013 is when this idea of the lone person started to shift. And so, you know, who knows, maybe it's threekanism now or something like that. uh, Now that we know norms have potentially shifted. All right. Well, let's, let's go to that because, you know, studying diversity or studying kind of some of these issues can lead you to say like, man, what are we doing out here? But I know you also engage with a lot of organizations in your work, not only research, but in the classroom. And so diversity initiatives, I think, are becoming more prevalent. And in my view, I think, thankfully, they're becoming more thoughtfully designed, right? That uh, some of the things that we were doing in the in the 80s and 90s, like quotas um, that yeah. lent themselves to this threshold thinking are being replaced by by other things. But I see these thresholds as, as an obstacle and, and a little tough to, to navigate because maybe they are subconscious in a way. I guess I'll ask you, do you see or can you think of any examples of organizations that are addressing this issue? And what are some ways that maybe they are addressing this kind of movement away from these thresholds? Well, one way that I kind of encourage the organizations I work with to think about this is to actually think about succession planning. If we know that there's not enough representation in our leadership, then don't you think that in feedback processes, one thing that should be asked is, who are you thinking could be your successors Mm -hmm. and ensuring that there is diversity on that list that people create. This means that people, leaders will make sure that they'll they'll start grooming and paying attention to Mm -hmm. people of color and women to ensure that there are more of them that Mm -hmm. are able to be in some of these senior roles. So that's one thing I'm seeing or recommending to companies that they do and do more of because this idea of who's next, it's easy to say, oh, there's no pipeline. But if you're not grooming the pipeline, then no, there's not going to be anyone next. So that's one area that I see people thinking about a little bit more. You know, so so stepping away from the immediacy of a vacancy and it needs to be filled to uh, thinking about the decisions a little bit farther up the funnel, so to speak. right? Right. So And then I think that also removes this idea of looking towards others for signals and more looking internally, right? Which ideally you want to be in. Yeah, that's good. I I think I can't help but think about sports examples uh, of this, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. There's been a a lot in within the the National Football League around uh, coaches and and the lack of diversity for coaches. And they've tried some things, right? The Rooney Rule was an attempt of a policy to do this. And uh, it has it has fallen flat. And I just can't help but wonder if 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 in some way giving the hey, at least one has to be in the pipeline kind of leads to this threshold thinking leads to the threshold thinking in a bad way, in a bad way. Yeah. I mean, I think anytime you you put a number in someone's head to say, Uh, hey, at least one, 
And that also speaks to some research that's out there that says, you know, when you are coming up with a slate of people to interview, when you just say, okay, we need at least one, that does not help in ensuring that somebody will of color or a woman will actually get the job. It's when you make sure that they're more than that. Um, And so, yeah, we need to move away from this. There is a number, there is a right number, there is a threshold, and instead really do some digging into what are some of the ways in which our organization is not equitable? And you know what? I also think, like, if you ask people in their organization, like, what percentage of this organization has women? What percentage are people of color? Most people don't know. So how about in our organizations, we start with just increasing awareness? You know, I say that, you know, to you as a Black academic as I am too, there aren't very many of us out there. And if we ask our colleagues, how many Black faculty are there at the school, they would get the number (laughs) wrong. So can we first understand what the number is in our organization and then work to change that? Yeah, the disclosure of that information is very powerful. You know, as I teach a people Mm -hmm. analytics course, and I say sometimes just seeing the data laid bare. Yes is enough to at least yes. stoke some 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 good conversations that you need to have. The idea of a, recruiting is important, but you don't just mm-hmm. look at recruiting. You also look at, all right, you get folks in to uh, certain positions, but uh, there's also times where underrepresented groups will behave in ways uh, unknowingly that limit their own performance. Yeah. And so you have yeah. uh, another paper at AMG that I'd like to touch on just briefly um, about yeah. gender and delegation. And this one, yes. I've already, if I haven't already, I'm going to be sending to my wife, but uh, for her in, in, in the workplace. But this one like really was like, holy smokes. Um, so can you talk a little bit about uh, gender and delegation and what you found there? Yeah. So, I mean, the context is that I found myself as an assistant professor doing a whole lot of stuff that I probably didn't need to do and that I could have passed on to somebody else. Uh And, you know, me and our beloved, the late, great Kathy Phillips um, and our grad student at the time, Ashley Martin, were kind of like, wait a minute, we all kind of do this. Is this a gender thing or Mm -hmm. what? Is it our women less likely to delegate? And if so, why? And so we investigated that and we found that, yes, women were less likely to delegate than men. Because we call the task of delegation uh, a gender role paradoxical type of task. Hmm. What does that mean? You know, women are expected to be um, communal and relational and not agentic and dominant. And delegation is both of those. So Hmm. in some ways, delegation is kind of agentic. You're telling somebody what to do. You're being Mm -hmm. dominant. Mm -hmm. And women get penalized when they're dominant. Hmm. But at the same time, it's also communal. You're helping a subordinate grow and develop. So we realize and recognize that when there's a gender role paradoxical type of task, the agency aspect of that task will loom larger than the communal side. Hmm. And that will then evoke more negative emotions for women. So we found that women were less likely to delegate, that they associated delegation with more negative mood, more anxiety, more guilt over overburdening their subordinate. But here's the funny thing. You know, we wanted to see how we could potentially undo this effect of not delegating. And so what we did to kind of reduce the effect was we reminded women that delegation does help subordinates grow and develop. 
And so when women were reminded of the communal aspect, the relational aspect that was aligned with the gender role stereotype, that's when they felt less anxiety about the prospect of delegating. So I share that with everybody. And by the way, I don't think it's just women. I think it's anyone who has some type of um, stereotype against them that Mm -hmm. might make them less likely to want to engage in a behavior. So it applies to many other social categories in addition to women. Yeah. And it's, it's, I love the, uh, the, would you call it paradoxical? What big brain word did you use? Yes. Gender role paradoxical. Gender role (laughs) paradoxical. I love that because, you know, there are, I think times when, you see uh, people are underrepresented. They're the first uh, in a certain role. Uh, You have made history in in that way yourself. So you you can speak to this, that, um, you know, people come to to them and say like, Hey, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? And sometimes the, how I did it is not the, how it should be done. Right. (laughs) And so sometimes the, how, how you did it and uh, the general discourse about kind of being a boss and, 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 and working yourself, you know, to death, uh, so to speak, yeah. is not the way to go. And and I, I love that your research says, hey, A, this is bad. So stop doing this. And B, yeah. here's a simple way that you can help yourself. And if you see someone, a woman or underrepresented uh, member that is struggling with this, you can help them. Right. And so really, really useful and and beneficial uh, research here. I also typically ask people, especially like senior executives, write down all the things on your to do list. And then the first thing I say is tick off two that you're going to pass on to somebody. Just pick two. Don't give them don't give them a choice of whether or not they're going to do it. It's like, no, there's two things on this list that you're giving to somebody else. (laughs) Somebody else can do. You can't have a list of 10 things and think you can do them all. Someone else can do it. So All right. after this podcast yeah. is done, I may need some consulting help here. Uh, I, I too have a list that I'm like, yeah, there's I not enough you. hours of the you. day. <laughs> All right. So aside from doing uh, amazing research and uh, helping companies navigate the stuff and all the teaching, you also have other hobbies with air quotes, which is talking to amazing people about fantastic topics. So you are the host of the very popular TED business podcast. Uh, and you present powerful and surprising ideas for people to incorporate into their lives. I recommend everyone to subscribe. I subscribe. It's great. You're great. Thank you. Um, but I want to Thank ask two you. questions here. Uh, first, how has it been hosting the podcast? I might, you know, having recently started one, want to know some things uh, that that I can uh, do or avoid. And then what are some of the ideas that you've uncovered doing the TED Business Podcast that have resonated most with you? Well, the first thing about doing a podcast is that it takes time to kind of get in your flow and to ramp up. So be patient with yourself, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time initially and then eventually you're like, oh, this is something I'm really looking forward to today, you know. Um, So that's one thing. So be patient about it. And then fun ideas. Oh, there have been so many so many great talks that I get to just share my thoughts on. More, more recently, there was a great one by um, Shankar Vedantam, which talks about how bad we are at knowing what our future self wants. Mm. We don't know. Our present self thinks we will know and are all grounded and stuck to that thing. Mm-hmm. But our future self, uh, we don't know. And it resonates so deeply because, you know, as a person who went to business school and got my MBA, 
I didn't necessarily think I was going to be a professor. I assumed, you know, that X, Y, Z would be what I liked and what I was about. And on my last day of class, I actually read this assignment that we had to do um, in our leadership class, which was to write a memoir um, talking about what we would do, would be doing 10 years after we graduated. Mm -hmm. So I read that to my students and what I'm doing now is not that. <laughs> and it's just so refreshing for me and refreshing for them to know that in their shoes, they have no clue what their first, what will make them happy and what will bring them joy in the future. So yeah. um, I felt like that talk really resonates with me. That's great. I, so I had a very similar view when I read um, Stumbling on Happiness, the yes. Dan Gilbert book, yes. right? And I remember some section of that, that kind of talked about like, you know, happiness is based on your past self predicting accurately what your future self will want. And we're bad at right. prediction of all types. And so it's no right. surprise that right. we're bad at predicting what will make us happy. Um, and I, exactly. I try to remind my students that um, because they agonize over choices. And I say, the good news is no one knows what's going to make you happy. So That's right. decide with the information you have and then reassess. <laughs> mm -hmm. Keep reassess. it moving. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right. Um, so I want to let you go on these two questions. You've been very gracious mm -hmm. with your time and I appreciate it. So uh, the first is research related. The other is totally fun related. So okay. our field, you know, being an applied field is is really driven by phenomena that we observe, but we don't really understand. And mm -hmm. so outside of the topics we've been discussing today, are there any events or trends happening in the world that pique your curiosity? Yeah. Oh, I would say that what piques my curiosity is often dictated by some of the things that I'm observing in the companies that I work with. And one area where almost every company is struggling with is performance management. And I feel like we need to revisit how we do and experience and talk about and give feedback. And that's linked to what's happening out in the world, because out in the world, A, we know that there is... Um, it's hard to have these difficult conversations. We've been having or trying to or pushing towards having conversations that I call transformational conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion. These are hard topics to have. And we know that in like cross-gender, cross-race hierarchical situations, it's hard to give honest feedback because you're afraid of how you're going to be perceived. I think that we need to normalize feedback I think that in our organizations, we need to give it more frequently, be, which then allows us to normalize it, mm -hmm. because that's really how we're going to help people progress and give them the information they need to succeed. And so feedback does two things. It gives you gets you more comfortable with having tough conversations, which you'll inevitably have to have. Mm -hmm. But it also um, you know, gives you skills that will really help in any situation. So, yeah. so that's a phenomenon that I'm tinkering with and running some studies on right now. I love that. Um so I'll give you my lay my lay theory here around feedback mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is we are getting we are bombarded with feedback. We have started to cope with this by either totally ignoring it or taking it way too personally. It seems like it's yes. the total extreme. So if you go online, there's no uh, even handedness. There's no nuance. It's you're awful. This is terrible. Or yes. this is the greatest thing ever. There's nothing ever that's ever been better than this. And that's led to like a, an ignore or accept, like a one zero. Right. And right. Um, that's 
just not a healthy way to kind of think about it. And so I think people are being trained. I, I noticed with my own students, right, that getting mm-hmm. mixed feedback or constructive feedback is difficult. And, and I think yes. it's because of this. So that's my late theory. Yes. Is that, uh, oh, no, that is so good. And I'm at, we're actually looking at this um, mm-hmm. in, uh, in yes, we're, all, we're actually looking at this and finding that people of color are more likely to get conflicting feedback too. Um, in I, I won't share the details of the context. Okay. Maybe okay. eventually it'll be an AMJ. Paper. Oh, I, I but, you better um, send it to yeah. AMJ now that yes. I heard about it. <laughs> yes. How do you deal with conflicting feedback? And mm. how are you as the aggregator of feedback? Yep. You know, yep. then dealing with the conflicting feedback too, because in many of our organizations, there's somebody who's aggregating that. And yeah. what do you then tell the person? Anyway, yeah. see, now you've made me all excited. Okay. About well, this is good. I can't wait to uh, read this in print in AMJ. All right. Last question. Uh, so this is a lit review. We're all about literature. Um, yes. So what's something that you're reading now for fun, not something work related, something that you're reading just for pleasure and entertainment? So because I ran the marathon in November, I nice love humble brag. books. Nice humble I'm brag. Please saying, continue. No, 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 please. Don't let me stop. Um, it forced me to have read, listen to books hour after hour after hour. And I love, love autobiographies. I love memoirs. And so um, the most recent memoir that I'm reading is Billie Jean King's book. So um, that is what I'm reading for fun. And I'm excited to just continue and uncover more nuances of her amazing life. So, but you've got to check. I love the ones of comedians too. Okay. Because, oh my gosh. So I would encourage everyone check out the memoirs, autobiographies of comedians um, and also athletes because I find them phenomenal. All right. I I read or listened to Born a Crime, the Trevor Noah autobiography. And it was hilarious. It's, it was really it, funny, it legitimately so funny. funny. Uh, and he yes. narrates it. So it it, it felt yes. like watch, listening to like a 10-hour stand-up uh, episode of him, but a truly remarkable life. So Yes. Colin Jost, he has a great one. Um, I mean, there's so many good ones. So. I mean, these are all people that you, these are your friends now, right? Aren't you? I mean, you know what? hung out you with Chris Hemsworth. You've kind of just jet set it around i mean you know what does colin drop by columbia visit school and just no no he does not no. not yet no now once no. he hears this he's who gonna knows be like, I <laughs> maybe he'll want me to be his stress coach too yeah I don't know. <laughs> I, hey put it out there i love that um well thank you so much for the time i greatly My appreciate pleasure. it um and uh looking forward to seeing the, the, the next thing that you have you're definitely a thought leader in this area And I I appreciate your work and I look forward to engaging with it again in the future. Thank you for having me on. It's always so good seeing you and talking to you. Um, And I think it's great that you're doing this podcast. So I appreciate you having me here. All right, that's it for the Lit Review. I appreciate Madupe for her time and I appreciate you all for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Lit Review podcast. You can find us by searching for The Lit Review, an AMJ podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms, as well as on the AMJ homepage. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we have a weekly Twitter Spaces show called AMJ Radio Live, hosted by at AOM Connect on Twitter Spaces. I'll be joining the show once a month to provide a behind-the-scenes look at the podcast and answer any listener questions. Thanks to the Academy of Management for their support for this podcast. Special thanks to my producer, Holly Fearing, for all of her work behind the scenes. 
Our theme music is produced by Key to Life. This is Sekou Burmese. See you next time. Take care and be good.